0: Welcome to the Academy Podcast, a podcast dedicated to sharing rich content for the purpose of spiritual growth. I'm your host, Shalom Agderap. Unless this is your first time listening with us, you know the drill. The Academy creates transformative space for people to connect with God, self, others, and creation for the sake of the world. To learn more about the Academy, visit academy.upperroom.org. I want to take a minute to make sure you also hear a super personal invitation from me journey with myself and other spiritual pilgrims in 2022 for one year online offering from the academy for spiritual formation called spiritual formation in today's world i will be serving on the leadership team for this experience which consists of four three-day retreats online using the zoom platform session one begins february 24 2022 as a cohort based experience participants in spiritual formation in today's world will receive the wisdom and teaching from four top-notch faculty like those you hear on this podcast you will also receive the gift of journeying together with the same team and community throughout the year participants at previous academies are welcome as well as those who are new to academy all together If you are in need of community, wisdom, teaching, worship, and stillness, I strongly encourage you to apply by February 11th. For more information and to apply, visit academy.upperroom.org. Now, on to this month's episode. We hear from Amy Oden on the topic of tradition and what we are handing over to those who follow. Born and raised on the prairies of Oklahoma, Amy has found her spiritual home under the wide open sky. She earned her PhD in religious studies at Southern Methodist University, writing her dissertation on Augustine. Over the last 30 years, she has served on the faculties of Oklahoma City University, St. Paul School of Theology, and Wesley Theological Seminary, woo woo, my alma mater, where she taught me church history. She now is an itinerant professor teaching at several schools in the areas of theology and history of Christianity and spiritual formation. She is also a spiritual director, companioning people as they listen for God in day-to-day life. Amy is committed in her scholarship to illuminating ancient voices for Christian life today, introducing spiritual practices that can ground and nourish lives of following Jesus into the world. Her most recent book is Right Here, Right Now, The Practice of Christian Mindfulness. I still resist calling her Amy and not Dr. Odin, but Amy speaks of tradition, not a treasure chest sealed shut and unchanged, but an open-handed gift that stays alive precisely because its practices and teaching adapt to a new time, place, and context. Folks, the Advent season is here now, and the season of Christmas will soon follow after that. There will be much handing down and handing over of gifts. There will be rituals that have been on pause that perhaps this year can finally be resumed. Will we revel in the sameness? In the treasure chest that finally gets unlocked after 20 months of a pandemic? Or will it look and feel different now as it is handed over and shared after so much of our communal and global life has changed? Listen on, dear one, and as you listen, breathe deeply and expand gently.
1: We know how tradition works. It's, it's um, in our own lives. You know that what has happened in your childhood home, you carry much of that with you, but you spend a lot of your adult life calling through, adapting, revising very few things do we fully jettison and leave behind completely. Most things um, are adapted and changed over time. And, and I think it's helpful to think of, to, to, to just notice that this is what tradition is tradition, traditio, to hand over, to hand down. It's the same uh, root for the word to trade, right? Trade, the, the trading. <laughs> And and we often think of tradition as something like maybe a treasure chest that is full of these valuable teachings or practices and we hand it down, kind of sealed shut from one generation to the next generation to the next generation unchanged with this treasure inside. Um, When, in fact, that's not how tradition works at all. Uh, In fact, if we did it that way, um, it's hard to get at the treasure because it's closed up and it's fixed and it's, it's sort of rigid. Um, and so this treasure chest sort of um, notion of tradition can mislead us and I think can actually blind us to the way tradition um, actually works, which is in order for a tradition to stay alive, in each handing down over time, um, practices, even teachings adapt to a new time, to a new place, to a new context. And this is not a claim just about humans and the change of, of human life. It's a very important theological claim about who God is. That God, we believe that our God is a living God. Can I get an Amen. amen. Right. God's not like, oh yeah, I showed up in the first century, I gave you everything you needed, I'm off on a cloud, holler if you need me. Um, but our God acts in time and space, these dimensions of human life. And so God, through the Holy Spirit, meets us in every moment. That's why you're here in this chair today, because you've known the power of God in your life, and God hasn't come into your life Um, and related to you like a first or second century person. God comes to you in your realness, meeting you where you are in the year 2019, not even the year 2018, right? Your life has changed in the last year, and God's meeting you now in this new place where you are. So our proclamation about who God is is what teaches us then how tradition works, because of the living God who moves through time. And this is the witness of the Israelite people, it's the witness of Jesus Christ, and it's the good news of God with us, right here, now, <laughs> right? And so we might think of our Christian traditions, broadly speaking. Rather than a treasure chest, we might think of it as a more organic image, something that grows and that changes over time like a tree, right? That we have a a pretty good uh, solid trunk on this tree, but we have multiple branches. And there are new branches that grow, some branches die off, some branches get diseased, some branches bear more fruit than other branches. Um, there's a deep root system that's always taking in nourishment, but it's not the same tree. The tree goes through seasons, right? I mean, that kind of organic character to our tradition. We have another really important um, framework for understanding tradition, and that is the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, right? Another framework for tradition is family reunion. We might think of, as we look at these Protestant spiritualities there's a there's a lot of them in the room it's kind of like a family reunion where you know there's some relatives you really like and some not so much Uh, they're the relatives that have the same fight every time they're together Uh, and in our church tradition our history is often very much that way but being in the same room with your family often helps you know who you are um, and knows what you're gonna push against and knows what you and, and helps you to know what you're going to carry forward. In Acts two, which we often think of as the birth of the church, right? The Holy Spirit doesn't come in one language and say, now everybody's got to learn this language if you want to talk to God. The Holy Spirit comes in the mother tongue of all these travelers that had gathered in Jerusalem for Passover right, all these out-of-towners, so that God always shows up in our heart language, in our mother tongue, to speak to us most deeply in who we are. And so that's going to have all of those different languages, right, and all these expressions. Now, for Protestant spirituality, that, that in many ways is our real gift, is that as Protestants, we're willing to sort of hear this plurality of the way God speaks in the world. The the peril and the danger of Protestant spirituality is that we are then, um, we can be very quick as Protestants, and especially in the United States, um, to want to individualize that that voice of the Holy Spirit so that it's, it's either only for me or it's only in this form and sort of make absolute what our particular, the particular way God has spoken to us then becomes uh, the absolute norm for everybody else, right? That's the danger. Um, it, it's also helpful just to remember that in the American context, we have a... a, a Sort of particular way of thinking about religion that it, that follows our economic models that are free market and entrepreneurial, and so we tend to privilege in American Christianity. We privilege the novel and the new, um, and we kind of um, and we, in that sense, we we also in many ways, privilege the individual voice. If I don't like what my preacher says, I'll just go down the street and start my own church, right? I mean, that's a very Protestant sensibility that is particular to the United States, even more than the rest of the world. So this whole category, I want to just say a word about, too, of Protestant spirituality. You know, is this even really a category? In some ways, it's a negative category. It's sort of the leftover bucket. If you're not Catholic and you're not Orthodox, Christian, everybody else, then you're you're Protestant. Sort of like you're a Jew or you're a Gentile, everybody else, right? Um, And so... I'm going to invite us to think a little bit about, about Protestant spirituality as protestant, that we come out of this tradition of protest, that it was the Protestants that, that were protesting some things in the church that um, make this shift and what that means for our spirituality. Um, And to remember that Protestant spirituality is still connected to the larger Catholic with a capital C as well as a small C and other traditions. So if we think about Protestant, the the Protestant Reformation, um, as sort of setting some of the DNA for Protestant spirituality, uh, we have in many ways protest at the base of reform and protest in some ways as a basis of spirituality, and I think that has some real gifts, and I think it has some real dangers. Um, so, spiritualities of protest in our in the DNA, when I say our, I'm really speaking broadly, meaning Protestants broadly speaking. T- to think about having protest in our DNA means we tend to to have in our spiritualities a a real clear sense of what we're over against um, and an over againstness, which is is very, very formative. And it's important because we are as formed by the things we react against. They have incredible power because now they define us Our reaction against things defines us as well as being shaped by the things we embrace. So if I grew up in a home where God is a bully and I react against that, I'm not having anything to do with God. And for the rest of my life, I know God's a bad guy and I'll have nothing to do with it. I'm, reject- I'm reacting against it. So now God as bully has all the power in my life, right? It's gotten to have the power to decide who I'm going to be in relation to God because I've reacted against it, which means I'm not looking at any other forms of God, right? So the things we react against carry huge, huge influence and power in our lives. So as pro- Protestants, I want us to... to um, To step back and see that a little bit so just to remind you in a historical overview Christianity itself is a reform movement right many historians look at what Jesus is doing and saying he's reforming his tradition right he's coming in and saying um, you know we have this beautiful covenant with God and it's it's gotten distorted in some ways to now be a burden and a weight and an obstacle to God, right? So he's in some ways reforming his own tradition. And then very early as the church is emerging, Acts 15, uh, Christians are trying to decide how are we going to reform these Jewish practices we've received? Um, Jerusalem Council meets, are we going to have Gentiles follow the whole law or only part of the law, right? It's, It's still just stunning and Um, in many ways disappointing to me that, that, you know, they just basically, it's shocking that that these early Jewish Christians said, oh yeah, the Gentiles, you don't have to keep the law, this joyful gift that God has given us for a faithful and righteous life. You know, the whole scripture of all the Torah, yeah, you don't have to do that. Huge reform, earth-shattering change. As we look at the first five centuries, Um, We've got a lot going on in Christianity in terms of constant reforms. The desert movement is a protest movement against the the way Christianity has moved into privilege in, in the Constantinian era. Um, certainly, monastic forms, so so I, I do this quick review just to say it 's not as though Christianity is just one thing where everybody agrees until we get to the 1500s right this is This is just like any real family. there are constant fights, there are constant divorces, there are constant reunions, right all of that is happening, and I should say i 'm happy to send you these powerpoints. I should have said that first um, And as we think about the spread of of Christianity during this period as well, uh, it's it's moved across North Africa, it's moved uh, by the early 600s, Christianity is in China, we have the first monastery in 620, Um, it's moved into Korea, that peninsula by uh, the early, early 700s, Certainly, Christianity's always, I mean, from the very first century is in Africa and in Middle East and into Persia. So so in all of those forms, that's localized and it's contextualized. And it looks really different, you know, um, in Ethiopia than it does in Ireland, right? So um, the period right before the the formal sort of Protestant Reformation in the 1500s um, is already addressing a lot of the grievances that will come up that, we, that protesters are going to protest um, around issues of corruption in the church, the concentration of power. And that's, off, that's largely why we get the rise. It's just this flowering in the 1200s and 1300s of all these grassroots movements. Francis of Assisi, right? The poor Clares. Uh, the Dominicans, the Beguines, this amazing movement of women who said, we don't want to be nuns, but we want to be in ministry. So we're going to do intentional community. We're going to buy a house in a village and all live together, support ourselves through manual labor, mostly weaving, spinning, sewing. Uh, And then we're going to preach and offer pastoral care, spiritual direction, um, uh, provide uh, minor health care, you know, uh, sometimes be midwives. I mean, the, these grassroots movements were really flowering as, as in many ways an off-the-radar, sort of off-the-grid little green shoots of God doing new things in the midst of a huge institutional Roman Catholic Church in the West that um, was beginning to crumble. So what does this mean for Protestant spirituality? a couple of key shifts that happen. So Protestants in in the 1500s, certainly what they think they're doing, and I'm talking here largely about in Europe, what they think they're doing is shifting the locus of authority. So much of the protest is over authority. Who has authority? Where is authority? And so they're shifting it from what they see from the church, where now the church got to decide how to interpret scripture, what are the teachings, um, how, what are the sacraments, how are we to practice and worship together? And we've shifted from that authority there and put authority in scripture. And so the scripture, the Bible itself is lifted then as primary authority. And Protestants believe their self-understanding of what they're doing is shifting from human authority to divine authority, right? So that it's no longer, and again, you see how clearly this is a reaction against the corruptive power and structures in the church, so much so as to then see... that, that they're moving sort of from subjective authority to objective, that the scripture is objective, it's there, everyone can have access to it, um, and that shift um, is, changes the way authority is, is imagined and framed. The spiritual sort of center then shifts from church clergy to individual, right? And that's a key Protestant shift that is both, you know, uh, has some pros, has a lot of cons. It shifts from folks who are um, set apart or credentialed or ordained, and the, the notion that, that the spiritual center isn't in the clergy. It's in this priesthood of all believers, um, a kind of uh, democratization, many you know, historians see a direct line from the Protestant Reformation to the rise of democracies 100, you know, 200 years later. Um, I'll, I'll talk in a minute about, I think, the way that priesthood of all believers has been confused, and Protestants actually think about it not as the priesthood of believers, one priesthood of all of us collectively, but the priesthood of each believer, right, which is not what the Bible says, Worship practices shift totally. That all of Christian worship until the until 1500 had been focused on the table, on the Eucharist, on this meal that is that we celebrate, the bread and the wine. The Eucharist was the hope. Why did you go to worship for the Eucharist, right? But in the 1500s, because of this shift from church to Scripture. For Protestants, the center of worship now becomes the word preached, the sermon, the preached word. So much so that in Protestant spiritual culture today, most Protestants think going to church is about hearing a sermon, right? And, And the sermon determines whether church is good or not, right? That's a very new development in our history. Um, epistemologically this shift of how do we know and experience God shifting very much from um, experiential by mystical I mean experiential knowing the knowing that comes through experience um, to focus on rational knowing and um, again the rise of enlightenment is at this time focus on the cognitive we privilege the cognitive so Protestants are really interested in things like belief. Um, And again, this is kind of a new shift. Um, So our origins in protest, I think, creates a spiritual ecology that tends to, we tend to, in our spiritual lives, have a real suspicion and critique of authority, right, Um, and of power. And I think that's one of the great gifts of Protestant spirituality. Um, and we really value autonomy because of that. You can't tell me what to believe. You can't, right? <laughs> that that sense of autonomy. I don't even, you know, it's really only Protestants that think they can be Christians alone, right? You're not ever gonna hear a Catholic or Orthodox person saying, yeah, I don't need the church to follow God in my life, right? That's a Protestant idea. So, So in some ways, that's very empowering, right? Because it means, folks aren't entirely dependent on whatever particular Christian community they happen to be in, they know God's bigger than this com- than this one particular community and I can meet God in this other way, freeing, empowering. And you can also see the, the problem with that is then I can just be sort of an individual and serve my own interests. Um, spiritual Protestant eco- uh, ecology then focuses on the individual and sometimes, can be an energy and a spirituality that's, that is more clear about what we are against than what we are for, right? So we don't, you know, we, for example, a Protestant spirituality that is really clear about my own uh, moral code I'm not gonna dance, I'm not gonna drink. I'm knocking, and my, so my Christianity, so that's how I know I'm a Christian, by all these things I don't do, right? That's an, that's an example of a spirituality that's over against uh, as a way to, I, to define one's spiritual life. Some real gains I think we, we have as in our Protestant spirituality comes from our access to scripture, our love of the Bible, the sense that, that scripture infuses our lives, we can read it in a language we can understand um, and have access to it, um, that we can question human authority, right? That we do critique power, that we can be practical and flexible, right? Uh, and, and I said, you know, if I don't like what the preacher says, I'll just go start my own church, but, but the, the flexibility in adapting to a new place, um, to seeing that, oh, the folks in our, you know, the, that our, the, the population in our area has shifted. Let's, let's go to where this other population is, right? That kind of flexibility, I think, is a gain. Um, that we appreciate the laity, um, that, that we believe every baptized Christian has a ministry, right? That's a powerful um, sense of the life of the laity. And again, that varies widely across <laughs> Protestantism. Um, A major gain, that belief does matter. We care about um, the the truth claims that are made. We want to think critically. We don't want to check our brain at the door and just have the pastor tell us what to think. Um, uh, Not that Catholics do that or Orthodox do that, but that's important in Protestants. Again, in many Protestant um, family communions, we actually end up... um, really mirroring a lot of those same things so we really do want the pastor to tell us right (laughs) what to believe i mean that that certainly happens too i think some of the big losses in christian spirituality we lost religious orders the you know luther and calvin and others just shut down all the monasteries they um actually were pretty violent with women who were in religious orders and um we have you know these horror stories of them being dragged out of convents, and we lost a lot of of our devotional practices, Um, and that's why Protestants sort of rediscovered spiritual formation in the early 20th century, about 100 years ago. Oh, there's formation, not only conversion, but formation. So Protestantism in America really focused on conversion for 100 years or so, and then realizing, well, (laughs) folks get converted, but you know, what about the rest of their lives? You know, oh, formation. And this is where Wesley and others really come in and are helpful. So, um, but but to be clear, they were protesting and they, they jettisoned a lot of devotional practice because they saw those as stumbling blocks. Those were obstacles to God, not avenues to God, right? So we can rediscover them as avenues. Um, saints, shrines, pilgrimage, we can talk more about those. We lost the whole penitential system, which was given as such a gift in the 200s. In the 200s, in the midst of horrible persecution, and Christians who were succumbing to persecution and denying Christ, and um, the, we, the church, had to decide, what are we going to do with these folks? Who Can they come back into the church once they've, rejected Christ publicly and so we we come up with this way of of reconciliation these forms of being reconciled back into community um, that become the penitential system after a thousand years or so it becomes pretty elaborate and pretty troublesome and so we don't want it anymore and we get rid of it but it means Protestants don't we don't have a very robust understanding of confession and reconciliation. Many of us jettison the sacrament. Some some Protestants keep a few. Uh, Most Protestants, we really lost a sense of the connectional church, the connectional ecclesia. And perhaps I think the biggest and most serious loss is reducing the word to the Bible. And that's a big confusion we have. The word of God, the logos, the word of God, Jesus Christ, the word made flesh, right? The Bible is not the word of Jesus is the word. The Bible reveals the word, right? That, That reduction or confusion, which I'll talk more about when we get to evangelical and Pentecostal spirituality, I think is a big loss. So let me stop And maybe just have a minute to digest if, you know, what in this rings true in your own experience? Some of you were formed as Catholics, some of you were formed um, in uh, different types of spiritual traditions that were Christian or not, religious or not, right? Um, But as a Protestant now, you know, to just think about what sounds familiar, what sounds unfamiliar? as you look across the landscape of your own spiritual life.
0: Amy's voice, her cadence and inflections stay with me as the professor who wants to interrogate our assumptions around why church is the way it is and challenge us to integrate our lived knowledge with our academic knowledge. What are the values that form us? That inform your spirituality? Is your spirituality defined by what you refrain from doing? Is it all about what you're against or what I'm for? I love the idea of protest as the basis for spirituality because I am over and against oppression. I am over and against patriarchal systems. I am over and against profit over people. And, being over and against something systems institutions that is all good and it comes at a cost and if we're not going to the well to drink deeply from sustaining refreshing waters we will be consumed by the fight and burnt out if we don't practice delight if we don't check in on one another if we don't create a wider table with deep relationships around that table protesting will chew us up and spit us out so i am grateful for amy's reminder that the work of god among us is always plural yes there is not one way to god there is not one way to protest or to be a protestant there's not one priest not one way to pray not one place to pray the work of God indeed among us is always plural. And Protestants celebrate the plurality of the way God speaks in the world. This is why we ought to take the invitation to rejoin the priesthood of all believers, the diversity of all believers, the mother tongues of all believers and reject the priesthood of each believer. For the priesthood of all believers allows us to belong to one another, to practice silence and contemplation, to celebrate together, and to make change in the world together. Thanks for listening along with us today. I invite you to share this podcast with others, and may it be a nudge, a guide, an honoring of intuitions you've long held and a means for justice in your lives and in the lives of all. To hear more from faculty and wisdom guides like Amy Oden, join us at the next online or in-person academy retreat. For more information, visit academy.upperroom.org.